the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Hello, everyone. I'm Bob Zadek, host of the country's longest-running libertarian broadcast. We're nationally streamed at 8 a.m. Pacific Time Sundays on the 860 AM The Answer app. My podcast archive provides more than a decade of historical issues, and BobZadig.com offers resource material, book lists, and other topical podcasts and more. My shows strive to offer in-depth content on social, political, and economic issues with the ideal guests accessible and entertaining. Every show will meet our standard of ideas, not attitude. Our country is controlled by two major political marketing cooperatives. They're called political parties, but they are not. In theory, the unifying force in a political party is a set of common beliefs that at election time, voters get to choose which set of beliefs they support. It's the source of continuing astonishment to me that our country can survive with so many issues that both parties get wrong. Today we'll discuss one of those issues, which is driven by religious fanaticism, misplaced moralism, political opportunism, sexism, racism, and class warfare. That's a lot for one issue to cover, but it does. To help me sort out this important issue that nobody seems to get right. I'm happy to welcome to the show Kathy Reisenwitz. Uh, We're going to discuss sex work in general and its decriminalization specifically. Kathy is the editor-in-chief of Sex in the State. Her writings have appeared in the Chicago Tribune, Daily Beast, and Reason Magazine. She's been quoted by the New York Times Magazine and has appeared on Fox News and Al Jazeera America. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bob. Okay, we're talking about sex work, quite a broad, somewhat undescriptive topic. First, tell us, it's not like the official definition, but as we discuss it during this hour together, Tell us what you and I and what we both mean by sex work so the audience has, as a starting point, a frame of reference. Absolutely. So the analogy I like to use is uh, the food industry, right? We all understand that the food industry encompasses a wide variety of subcategories, restaurants, grocery stores, food carts, yada, yada. Sex work is similarly an umbrella term, so it encompasses all forms of erotic labor. So this is everything from someone who writes erotica to someone who performs in pornography to someone who does uh, the term of artist full service sex work. So that would be um, your escort. Um, So, yeah, that's that's the that's the sex work umbrella. Now, some of what you said, that's a lot of activities. um, They're all we use the phrase sex work, which means it's basically service for money or service for some compensation, almost always money. So we're talking about a service provided by one person to another. Now is clearly all of the subcategories of sex work, not all of them are illegal. So give us in broad terms, the which types of sex work are legal, which types of sex work are illegal, which are regulated, just in very broad terms, so the audience can follow along as we have our conversation, and which are benign and not get very much attention whatsoever. Yeah, well, so there's, yeah, there are many categories of legal sex work. So for example, 
uh, making pornography is legal. Being an OnlyFans creator is legal. Being a stripper is illegal. Is legal. Being a phone sex operator is legal. Um, the main category of illegal sex work is, um, as I said, full service sex work. So uh, a straightforward exchange of sex for money is not legal in most parts of the United States, in most parts of the world. Um, it is a little gray sometimes because there are many places where escorting is legal. And so escorting is when you pay someone for their time during which sex may or may not happen. Um, there's also sugar babying, which is legal. And that is where you pay someone to um, either go on a date with you or be in a relationship with you. And generally sex occurs, but it doesn't necessarily have to. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, and then as far as regulation goes, um, a lot of sex work is highly regulated. When you look at strip clubs, for example, there is a lot of restrictions on where strip clubs can be located. There are often laws about how naked the performers can be at the strip club. Sometimes there are laws that dictate if it's a full nude strip club, you can't serve alcohol, yada, yada. Um, even phone sex operators are uh, restricted, regulated in what they can talk about on the phone. Um, so a lot of sex work operators have to worry about getting obscenity charges if they talk about certain um, acts, uh, just talking about the acts can get them an obscenity charge. So, um, yeah, sex work is, is highly regulated. Um, and, but the, the category that, you know, I'm focusing on decriminalizing the most is full service sex work because the harms of criminalization of full service sex work are, are so great. And the, the case for decriminalizing it is so compelling. Compliments of Bill Clinton, uh, we now have learned post-1990s that it's, an, a, it's a sensible question to ask, what does sex mean? You said, and you slipped it by us, but we're not, by the way, we're not going to go into details. We're not <laughs> going to go into mechanics. But in general, you said exchanging sex for money. Now, of course, you weren't quoting from the statute. You were helping a, a lay audience understand um, what we're talking about. But the exchange, it must be, the statutes must be pretty specific because criminal law has to be specific or else somebody cannot tell if they're breaking the law. So in very broad terms, with no uh, prurient details, um, when you say exchanging sex for money, what does, in broad terms, again, I don't want to get salacious, but what does, what does that mean to our audience? What can you cannot do for money? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I ha I, I've read some of the statues, but I, I don't remember the language. And I've been continually surprised at how broadly a lot of legislation is written. Um, but I, I would say... Often it is kind of up to the interpretation of police and prosecutors what constitutes sexual contact. Um, for example, if you give a, a naked massage, right, um, but there's no genital contact, like, is that sex work? Unclear. But generally speaking, when I hear about people being arrested and charged for sex work, uh, there is genital contact uh, involved. So it's general, but it's not a precise statutory definition. So therefore, in the margins, people can be committing a crime without realizing it. I think if you are paying someone directly for a service you would consider sexual, you probably know whether you're doing that. But again, when it comes to sugar babying or escorting, it is you probably know whether you're having sex or not, and you probably know whether you're paying someone, but the line is messy around, are you paying for the time or are you paying for the sex? Um, uh, you know, that's that's harder to, to prove. Now, what's so interesting about, at least to me, about this topic is that in the history of mankind, now probably mankind's I probably go to jail for saying that because I should find a gender neutral term, but oh well, if they're, they're going to come and get me, they're going to come and get me. In the history of mankind, for most of recorded history, the world morality did not criminalize the kind of sexual activity 
that we today, 21st century America, criminalize. It's in the span of human experience. It is an unbelievably new concept. So we have, in general, criminal law ought to respect an underlying morality, ought to respect some baseline that everybody agrees if this happens, it violates some normal human interaction that is bad for society and ought to be prohibited. But yet, for most, since morality has deeply historical roots, it's interesting to me that the underlying morality, which criminalizes sex work, is almost new to the Western Hemisphere, and insofar as the world is concerned, it's not new in history. So just to give us some idea, if you happen to have thought about it or read about it, where did we get this from? How did this all of a sudden, if humans have inhabited the planet for so long without really criminalizing this, How did it all start? And by the way, I have a secret reason for asking, which I'll share when you finish your presentation. But let's just start with that. Any idea where this all started? So from my reading, my understanding of the situation is that some of the first laws against prostitution were passed in the early 1900s in the United States. And the laws mentioned and coincided with uh, two trends. One was an influx of immigrants into the United States and uh, a lot of young women moving from rural areas to urban areas without their families. And so this created a kind of moral panic around loose women from overseas corrupting the nation's native-born men and naive girls from the country getting pulled into sex work and getting corrupted by sex work. And so that kind of created the demand for these laws against prostitution. So what's interesting is, as with so many topics that I cover, whether it's immigration, whether it's drug regulation, uh, in so many, and even to some extent gun laws, they have a bigotry, a ignorant, almost superstitious bias at its root. It's not founded in sound public health. It's not bounded in harm to others, because if there's any activity that's private to the people involved, it's sex work. So who, and even identifying the victim, who's the victim, the person who is the the seller or the person who is the buyer, even picking out who the victim is, we have a bit of a challenge. And also, to complete the circle, if you will, it's the same bias when you described it, naive country girls coming into the city. That's the same bias which drove our country to prevent women from voting for so many years, because women were delicate flowers that needed to be protected. And it was sexist. It was women couldn't make their own decisions and look after themselves. And therefore, one would think that the same movement that got us to the point that women are universally acknowledged as being of equal rights, with equal competence and equal dominion over themselves, that same movement ought to have been equally forceful in undoing the sexist bias in criminalization and regulation of sex work. So tell us, if you will, just because it's it's almost like the role of the NAACP and uh, organizations that seem to protect the rights of blacks, mostly inner city blacks, but all blacks, but yet they oppose school choice which is profoundly beneficial to blacks, but they do so for political reasons. So it's always been strange that black rights organizations have been so vigorous in opposing school choice. Same with those women's rights organizations and their position on sex work. And am I right in saying that in general, there's a strong woman's movement 
to continue regulation or criminalization of sex work and help us understand that very strange position, which seems to be contrary to what women ought to want for themselves. Yeah, totally. So as problematic as it is to talk about mainstream feminism, yes, within whatever you could call mainstream feminism, there is strong strains of what I call sex negativity, which is the idea that um, is it's in opposition to sex positive feminism, which is a, a, a subset of feminism, which says that sex is inherently morally neutral. And so what the sex negative feminists seem to believe is that sex is magic, that a woman can fully consent to cleaning a toilet for money or doing domestic labor for money or making a latte for money. But for some reason, she can't consent to having sex for money. And I think what feminists have done, mainstream feminists have done, many feminists, uh, we call them sex work, worker exclusionary feminists, SWERFs, um, is they have identified correctly that the that sex work is often exploitative, right? That there are lots of harms that are associated with, with doing sex work and a lot of exploitation associated with doing sex work. All true. But they're ignoring that there are lots of harms and exploitations associated with all work and that it varies with how much power you have in the work that you're doing. So if you're a CEO, you're probably going to be exploited a lot less than if you're a janitor. Um, same with sex work. If you're a high end sex worker who is well educated and has lots of other options, you're going to be treated better than if you are a survival sex worker who has to work outside. Um, and more importantly, what they're ignoring is that what makes sex work more dangerous than it needs to be and more exploitative than it needs to be is its criminalization and stigmatization. That without criminalization and stigmatization, the people doing sex work could easily do other things if they find that they're being exploited or they don't like it. And we find when you decriminalize sex work, where that's been tried, there are lower rates of exploitation, there are lower rates of violence, and there's less trafficking. So instead of looking at the situation and saying, sex work is worse than it needs to be because we're st stigmatizing and criminalizing it, they're saying sex is magic. It's, it's, it's a special category. And so we need to use the force of law and violence to force women to not engage in it. Um, and so that's where they really like miss the boat. Now, the legislatures, both state and more so in this case, the federal level, have somewhat recently enacted very broad sex work regulation, all under the guise of protecting women. And so you have a bunch of legislators, all with little or no knowledge, even any insights of the type you have just explained to us, even with ever hearing the other point of view, they obviously for some polit perceived political advantage, they have enacted pretty broad, very sweeping legislation that talk about unanticipated consequences, talk about collateral damage. These pieces of legislation do that. We would like to think our legislature is sent to think through, have hearings, and draft legislation that's focused and designed to fix a clear problem. These items of legislation are the are the opposite. And we have uh, legislation such as uh, FOSTA, uh, not F-O-S-T-E-R, F-O-S-T-A, an acronym, the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. How do they come up with these titles, which uh, if a consumer product seller would use that label on their product, they'd be in prison, they'd be in solitary because it is so misleading. So as by way solely of example, because I would like our audience who probably has had no reason to and therefore has not become aware of or thought about this type of legislation. And Kathy, if we talk about the legislation, we will explain so much of what 
we as a country get wrong. So tell us the brief story of legislation that we may discuss SESTA as well, but let's talk about FOSTA, what the goal was, what the problem was that was attempted to be fixed, how they attempted to fix it, and how wrong they got, and who are the victims. Now, sorry, tall order, I can break up that question into subparts, but first, what is FOSTA and what was the harm they were intending to focus on? We'll just do that, and then we'll go to the other pieces. Okay, great. So we are in the midst of a moral panic around sex trafficking in the United States. There are multiple organizations with evangelical roots and evangelical funding whose whole mission is to quote-unquote, raise awareness about sex trafficking. And so what they do is they raise millions. Help us understand, because that phrase appears all the time. It's it's like a blind label that gets attacked like fascism. What is sex trafficking, as you use the phrase, so the audience can follow your explanation? Thank you, yeah. So (laughs) sex trafficking officially is when you... Um, coerce someone into sex work and and generally speaking, like move them or help them move uh, across countries or across states in order to do sex work that they are not consenting to. Unfortunately, in the United States, the government at the state or federal, federal level, in most cases, does not differentiate between adult consensual sex work and sex trafficking. So any instance of sex work in the eyes of the law is can, can be considered sex trafficking. And when you look at the news reporting on sex trafficking arrests and sex trafficking stings, in every case I've examined, what you find is um, either adult consenting sex workers who have been labeled human trafficking victims, sex trafficking victims, And in the cases where sex trafficking does occur, where somebody really is coerced into doing sex work they don't want to do, um, in every case I'm aware of, it's either an instance of domestic violence, so someone's partner is forcing them into sex work, um, and or it's an issue of immigration status, where someone has a shaky immigration status and um, they are, in many cases, not forced, but coerced into doing sex work they wouldn't otherwise do, that they wouldn't do if they had a solid immigration status. So that's the definition of sex trafficking. In other words, women are per se incapable. They are incapable of having consented to this activity because somebody else decided it is somehow unpleasant or whatever negative label you want to put on it. So they create a presumption that cannot be overcome. It's a presumption that's irreversible, that a human being cannot consent to offer sex for money. Therefore, the activity itself had to have been coerced because it couldn't have been consented to because nobody in their right mind would consent. In other words, Kathy, a woman doesn't have the capacity to consent. So built right into what you said is uh, this sexist statement, women lack the emotional or intellectual capacity to consent. Okay, so sex trafficking is is helping somebody, I'm going to use my words, enabling somebody to perform the activity of sex for money. And if you're helping them, their desire to do so had to have been coerced by you, the helper. It could not have been consented to. Okay, so right away we have built in profound biases, um, ignorance, superstition driving the statute. So now we have, that's the motivation for the statute. So how does the statute fix this non-existent problem? Well, where I was going with the evangelical organizations is that they want to end all commercial sex in the United States, including pornography online pornography. And so they've ginned up this moral panic about human trafficking in the U.S. Uh, They do things like uh, create tip lines where you can uh, call in and say, oh, I found an instance of human trafficking. But 
these cases aren't confirmed. So anytime somebody sees like an adult consenting sex worker outside, they can they call that in and say it's sex trafficking. Um, Cindy McCain, who uh, is a huge uh, proponent of this moral panic, um, reported uh, an interracial family as uh, an instance of sex trafficking because they were in an airport and they were interracial. So, and the same instance can result in multiple tips. So these organizations are putting out press releases and documentaries saying, you know, millions and millions of people in Texas alone are human trafficking victims based on data that's worse than worthless, um, that the best estimates indicate that uh, sex trafficking in the United States is uh, very rare and, again, a result of domestic violence and, and uh, immigration status when it happens. So anyway, there's also, because they want to end uh, commercial sex and online pornography, they have ginned up a moral panic around sex trafficking happening online. So the idea is that when people are advertising their escorting services online, um, you know, the, every instance of that is actually an instance of sex trafficking and the pimp is writing the ad and forcing the woman to, uh, you know, service the client. And so they wanted to take all uh, places where uh, a sex worker could advertise her services and, and, and force them offline. And so they created a piece of legislation that made online platforms liable for any sex trafficking that might happen on those platforms. So if it turned out that someone was advertising their sexual services on Craigslist, but it was actually an instance of human trafficking, which you know d- does happen, did happen. Um, but in every instance, not every instance, but we have documented proof from the government, from the Justice Department itself, that for instance, Backpage, which was a place where sex workers would advertise, um, Backpage would find instances where they thought that human trafficking was happening and proactively alert the Justice Department. In addition, um, Online platforms send millions and millions of instances of child sexual abuse material to the Justice Department, where the Justice Department takes zero action um, already. But anyway, so these legislators decided, based on the testimony of these evangelicals, and again, not hearing anything from sex workers, not hearing anything from the people who would actually be impacted by this, um, we are going to make these platforms liable for any sex trafficking that might happen. Well, platforms don't have the time and energy to make sure that every instance of uh, sexual material that comes across their platform is um, fully consensual. They, you know, they can't investigate every single thing. And so what they did was they just booted all um, sexual content off their platforms. So in the wake of SESTA-FOSTA, which passed in 2018, Google started removing let me just that. Let me just mention, you have used the phrase SESTA just so the audience understands it, so the people other than you and I understand what SESTA. SESTA is an acronym for the legislation Kathy is talking about. The full name is Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. That's So when Kathy says SESTA, it's that body of legislation that – transfers liability onto otherwise neutral and immune uh, platforms who are just uh, providers of a platform, and that's all. Um, that's SESTA, as Kathy has used the phrase. Sorry, Kathy. I just wanted to welcome others inside the Beltway for that phrase. Thank you. Yeah, I- I'm using SESTA-FOSTA interchangeably for the, the piece of legislation that passed. But um, so, yeah, so... Platforms started just booting all sexual all sexual content, so people lost their private Google Drive files. Sex educators' uh, education materials were taken offline. Um, you know, people started getting banned for you know the platforms took down their personal sections. But most importantly, I think sex workers lost the places where they could advertise, and they lost the places where they could exchange safety information and bad date lists which means that sex workers didn't have access to know, they couldn't screen their clients before they saw them. And they couldn't find clients and negotiate with clients over the internet, which means they had to find clients and negotiate with clients in person, which is both of those things are far more dangerous than 
doing it online. And so we saw rates of um, sex workers being murdered and sex workers taking their own lives uh, rose significantly after the passage of SESTA-FOSTA. Um, nearly all sex workers saw their incomes decline. Um, they saw their quality of life decline. Sex work became more dangerous. And before SESTA-FOSTA passed, law enforcement told Congress this is going to make it more difficult to find trafficking victims because we work with platforms right now. Platforms, when they send us tips because they see something fishy, we go investigate and that's how we find sex traffickers. This will make it harder for us. And indeed, after SESTA-FOSTA passed, by all indications, sex trafficking rose and law enforcement had a harder time and so not only was it totally unnecessary because platforms were already complying, because platforms were already responsible for submitting any kind of sexual illegality to the federal government, and they already were, and the federal government was already not doing anything with that information. It didn't fund the investigation or prosecution of sex trafficking or child sexual abuse material at all. Um, and so it didn't do what it was supposed to do. It made the problem it was supposed to solve worse. It curtailed free speech rights. It um, limited the ability of competitors to these platforms. Like it puts a huge onus on uh, these platforms, which makes it more difficult for competitors to arise. Um, and it led to the deaths of sex workers. So we have first we start with a non-problem. Then we go and fix the non-problem with a statute, which is a major problem, far more than the non-existent problem it was trying to fix, as a result of which life becomes more dangerous for sex workers. And I suppose there is an ignorant subset of the population which would say, fine, an additional unadvertised benefit, but shame on them, obviously. So we have sex workers' lives become more dangerous, and all these sex workers want to do is enter into a voluntary, mutually beneficial, uncoerced exchange of consenting adults. That's all they want to do, and federal legislation has made their life cheaper and more hazardous and more expensive and less pleasant with less control to fix a non-existent superstition about sex trafficking. I, I want to be clear. Please. Sex trafficking absolutely is a problem. It absolutely does exist. And where it exists, it's, it's a horrible thing. Nobody should have to do any kind of work that they're not fully consenting to. Absolutely. Um, sex trafficking is a problem. It's simply, A, not a problem in the United States on the scale that's being widely claimed. And two, doesn't fit the definitions that people are using to define it. And three, is not going to be solved by stigmatization and criminalization. It will only be made worse. All of the evidence indicates that to limit human trafficking, sex trafficking specifically, the most uh, efficacious way to reduce the instances of human trafficking is to decriminalize sex work, provide material support, and streamline immigration. And so it is a problem. It's just these are not the solutions. The environment you are describing with the superstition and hysteria, I think you use that word, involving moral panic. Moral panic um, I flash back to, I guess it was the 90s, when we went through perhaps a decade of fear that nursery schools and daycare centers were engaging in satanistic practices and they were harming, permanently harming young children. Uh, Dorothy Rabinowitz wrote passionately about that for a decade in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, families were put in prison for a very long time under the the, the flimsiest of evidence that they were engaging in satanic practices and then it like went away. It like it, it disappeared from the earth. Also, if you want to go back in time, let's flash back to, shall we say, Salem, Massachusetts, um, superstition 
drives policy, harms innocent lives, and then it goes away and leaves in its wake a lot of destroyed lives. Moral panics never go away. They just rebrand. And absolutely, the sex trafficking moral panic is a rebranding of the satanic panic of the 90s. And what's infuriating about both of these moral panics is that they, the problem is very real in that sexual abuse of minors is absolutely rampant in the United States. There are kids getting sexually abused in the United States. But the vast, vast majority of that sexual abuse is happening at the hands of family members. And then after that, it's coaches and pastors and teachers and people who are close to the children, who have access to the children, who are in positions of authority over the children. It is not happening. Uh, there are no confirmed instances of ritualistic, satanic sexual abuse in daycares. Like that was not happening. And so we're ignoring the real sources of a real threat to kids' safety, which is the family and the home and the people that are close to the children who have access to the children, and focusing on this the scapegoat where we're afraid of the fact that women are entering the workforce en masse, which necessitates the use of daycare. And so, you know, burn the daycare operators, right? And now we have a situation where, you know, domestic violence um, whether it involves sex work or not, is very common. It's very rampant. Uh, people abusing workers who have shaky immigration statuses, it's very common, whether it involves sex or not. You go to Amazon, they're misusing people who are on H H1B1 visas uh, constantly. Um, and you, you, know, you do have uh, instances of people being coerced into sex work, but it's not random dudes in vans kidnapping white women in target parking lots, right? Like the moral panic around it doesn't look at all like the reality of the situation. And so we have all this uh, panic around the scapegoat of the other um, when we need to be looking at what are the systems in place that make it dangerous, um, you know, to, to be a sex worker in the United States and it's stigmatization and criminalization of sex work not stranger danger. Are there states, Kathy, that do a markedly better job than others in general in the relationship between the criminal justice system and sex work writ broadly? Are there some other states we could look to to learn their experience and whether they are right or the more restrictive states are right? There are definitely countries that do a better job. So, for example, New Zealand. Has that was going to be my next question. So, OK, we can, we can jump to countries. That's fine. Yeah. That would have been my follow up question. But please share with us your thoughts about countries that do a better job than we do. Yeah, um, New Zealand is one. Um, I think there are two others that have decriminalized sex work. I'm sorry, I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, in every place that has tried decriminalizing sex work, to my knowledge, again, rates of violence against sex workers have gone down. Rates of violence against clients have gone down. Uh, rates of SDIs have gone down. Um, rates of human trafficking have gone down. And the working environments are also less exploitative. For the United States, um, sex work is generally regulated at the city level. Um, at least full service in-person sex work is generally regulated at the city level. And um, the laws don't generally vary that much. But what does vary a lot is um, prosecutors, prosecutions. So prosecutors have a ton of leeway and discretion in um, you know who who they prosecute and for what crimes, um, and they also you know police will will direct their energy accordingly. If they they know the prosecutor isn't going to prioritize um, these prosecutions, then they will often uh, harass sex workers less. And so you know cities like um, uh, certainly San Francisco um, and there are others. The prosecutors at least the last prosecutor, not San Francisco's current prosecutor, but San Francisco's last prosecutor, you know, went on record and said, I am not prosecuting um, adult consensual sex work offenses. Um, 
And we have seen where police are able to and encouraged to work with sex workers instead of harassing and arresting them. Um, that's one of the best ways to find and rescue true human trafficking victims because sex workers will often know who's being coerced and who is doing it voluntarily. And so um, and it just works a lot better for police to work with sex workers than against them if you're actually trying to reduce instances of human trafficking. There has been a clear trend, a healthy trend, towards decriminalizing drug use. We all follow that. The states have rebelled against Washington in a huge victory for federalism. Us libertarians are cheering for that. And we have the states saying, irrespective of the fact that it's a federal crime, it's not a state crime. So feds, you stop at the border. We're going to allow marijuana use or opium, whatever the statute says. Is there any kind of a trend of a similar nature or the opposite direction involving the decriminalization, maybe legalization, maybe ultimately licensing? I think Nevada has licensing. So is there a trend or is it too early to even be that hopeful? Um, I'm quite hopeful. So in 2020, for the first time, a majority of United States voters said that they favor decriminalizing sex work. And we've seen legislation proposed in uh, multiple cities uh, to decriminalize sex work. Um, Scott Weiner in California uh, proposed legislation to decriminalize sex work at the state level. Um, And there, I believe, uh, Portland uh, had a decrim measure. I think there was a there was a a statute in, in Michigan that was proposed. And so. Definitely, like the there's an organization called Decriminalize Sex Work that's um, actively working to decriminalize sex work, and um, I definitely think that it there's hope. Um, and I want to take a second to differentiate between legalization and decriminalization. So, sex workers by and large support decriminalization over legalization, and the reason is because when you have legalization, generally speaking. It's highly regulated in who gets a license, and you are forced to work in a brothel. There are generally not very many brothels to choose from. And so it ends up being um, more exploitative uh, than it would otherwise be because you have such limited options. A lot of the regulations put on the brothels are really to keep um, incumbents out, they're very corporatist. Um, they're not really uh, associated with health and safety. And um, because one of the worst parts of legalization is that it leaves open a black market. And so if you want to do sex work, but you don't want to work for a brothel, brothel, you still have to deal with all of the harms of criminalization. Um, And again, if you have a situation where you've got a large black market for sex work, that again makes it more difficult to find and rescue human trafficking, sex trafficking victims. And so a better model for um, making life better for everyone is decriminalization over legalization. I hadn't thought of that distinction between you measured it. So thank you so much. I learned something important just now. Um, Lights went off in my brain. I now can be a more intelligent advocate for decriminalization. I always imagined that decriminalization was a a step in the continuum, and ultimately the holy grail was legalization. But you have just now dissuaded me. So I'll just ask you, when coming to be election time, who to vote for as well? <laughs> because now you've, be- <laughs> you, you've become my, my teacher on this subject. Now, uh, on is does one political party, they're really marketing machines, but I'll call them political parties. Does one political party get it right more often than the other. And the reason I'm asking is it occurred to me in preparing for the show that this was kind of a bipartisan era. No party has the high ground. Uh, Can you help us sort that out? Now, it's very difficult because neither party has a underlying philosophy. They just try to put together the right position on enough issues to get 50.1% of the popular vote. And so they have no core, no lodestar of beliefs. 
But so it's a hard question. But have you detected one party seeming to get it right more than the other? And perhaps you can give an example or two. That's a good question. Um, I would say that we as the war on drugs ramps down, I believe that we are entering, we are ramping up the war on sex. And by we, I mean Republicans for the most part. When I see 16 states have declared porn a public health emergency, these are not blue states. Um, when I talk, when I hear a politician talking about new laws and new fundings or stings for sex trafficking, they don't tend to be Democrats. They tend to be Republicans. Um, it was the Utah legislature that passed a law that every device sold in the state has to have a porn filter installed and turned on by default. Um, that we can get into the technicalities around that law, but literally happened. Um, so I would say Republicans are definitely worse on the, the war on sex than Democrats are, but Democrats are not good. Um, so SESTA-FOSTA was uh, introduced, I believe, by uh, Kamala Harris, definitely championed by Kamala Harris. So a lot of Democrats um, on board with, with SESTA-FOSTA. And um, Democrats definitely participate in the, the sex trafficking, moral panicking. Um, but of the legislators who are submitting the decriminalization, sex work decriminalization bills, like all of them are Democrats, as far as I can tell. Um, so I would say they are both terrible um, and the Republicans are worse. I think also when it comes to sex trafficking, the the hysteria goes is global because the UN is also has given a lot of at least lip service. They don't have an enforcement arm as such, but the UN is a frequent offender, I think, and contributor to that hysteria. Uh, all of these organizations um, do wrap themselves in some moral superiority. That's always a very comfortable starting point without any f- focus on as the eras of FOSTA and SESTA about the downside of their position. It just, it seems, makes them, it's feel good for them and live worse for lots of other people. Now, what caused me to invite you, besides I've been following your writings, to be on the show now is what got my attention. And as we wind down a bit, uh, what caught my attention is one of the, uh, on this subject, great, recent great Satans is Wells Fargo. Um, Wells Fargo as an institution, and this did not seem to be governmental action. This was Wells Fargo's action. But Wells Fargo did something on this subject, which struck me as being both indefensible, mean-spirited, and senseless. And I'm talking about the rebirth of a subject we I spoke about several years ago when it was very much in the news called Operation Choke Point. Uh, we may revisit that subject in a second, but tell us what Wells Fargo has done and see if the audience agrees with me with my kind of angry label on their action. Yeah, so um, Wells Fargo dropped uh, the accounts of several um, legal sex workers and just said, we're not going to serve you anymore. You don't have access to your bank account. Um, we don't like you. And this is part of a huge, uh, widespread, um, consistent pattern within the financial services industry to um, exclude and discriminate against even legal sex workers. And so what you have are people losing their bank accounts. Um, you have Visa and MasterCard dropping Pornhub, saying we're not going to serve Pornhub. And it's based on their own moral squeakiness of deciding, you know, we don't like sex workers, we don't like the sex industry, and so we're just not going to serve you. And it's extremely harmful to um, all sex workers, but especially the most marginalized, right? Like they're going to have the hardest time recovering from this hit. And so, again, it makes no one safer. It makes it makes people worse off. It hits the marginalized the hardest. Also, they can feel uh, morally pure. And this is revisiting. I mentioned uh, Operation Choke Point. 
this activity, this heinous banking activity, first came to light about, oh, four or five years ago. I did a show on this. The operation was called Operation Choke Point, and government was seeking to put out of business lawful activities that government, federal government, just didn't approve of. Think of a gun shop, a gun shop obeying all the laws, all the licenses, being careful in its record keeping, selling a lawful product. Government didn't like it. So government encouraged banks to close the accounts of gun shops. Well, if you don't have a bank account and a credit card agreement, you can't function. So a lawful business that somebody in government didn't like. Now, how did they do it? They declared that for a bank to have a gun shop as a customer, that was an unsafe and unsound banking practice. Sound pretty general? Sure does to me. But they declared that that activity threatened the institutional reputation. Get this of a bank, as if Wells Fargo has a positive institutional reputation to begin with. It tarnished their reputation, and it encouraged Wells Fargo, in this case, get rid of legal sex workers, and the country will love you and forgive all your transgressions. So it was that topic that was in the news perhaps 10 days ago, and it was stealthy. Wells Fargo didn't really have a press release. It just came out. Uh, And it's that practice of the obscene overreach of government, in this case, on an underrepresented in terms of uh, voting power, a uh, not favored group in many of the public's eyes. The banks just picked on them and beat them to the ground. Uh, So, Kathy, I want to close with thanking you because you've given us an optimistic view, believe it or not, because you have told us that in your informed opinion and your when you're informed on something, it's really being informed that the trend is that the trend is to move towards the, the decriminalization of sex work, albeit quite slowly. But if you want to look for a trend, there it is. So there is hope that one one elected official's morality will not be forced on the rest of us and deny consenting adults from engaging in a mutually beneficial, uncoerced exchange. And that's what this topic and that's what this show is all about. Kathy, thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time. Your insights are wonderful. You taught me a lot in just this mere hour. So thank you so much. And I do hope the next time a bank does something nasty to a sex worker or anybody else in this country from the from a governmental or institutional standpoint, you'll come back to help us fight for their rights. So thank you so much, Kathy, for giving us your time. And thank you to my friends out there for giving Kathy and I an hour of your valuable time. We hope you have found it worthwhile. Thank you so much. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.